Psalm 78, I don't know how many years ago it has been now, but it's quite a number of years uh, since we adopted the uh, Desiring God curriculum for the bulk of our Sunday school. And Psalm 78 uh, was sort of their theme text, uh, especially the opening verses, and we'll be looking at the first eight verses about uh, a central, extremely central, biblical theme, Old Testament theme of passing spirituality and faithfulness to God on from one generation to the next. Now, if you are at all familiar with the Old Testament, you know that this desire in the Old Testament was underwhelmingly successful. And, um, and it has tended to remain down through the ages underwhelmingly successful. Uh, but it remains the purpose and the goal And it remains the ideal and the instruction of God in any case. So let's stand together. Psalm 78, 1 to 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that you have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and his wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, when we call upon you, you have a history of answering us. You are God of righteousness. When we find ourselves in times of trouble, You have a history 
of making a broad path for us to walk on. You have a great history of being gracious, of hearing our prayers. But Lord, we confess that we have a history of wandering from you. We have a history of placing what we find glorious in what you label emptiness. We have a history of loving the wrong things and of neglecting the most valuable things. That is our history. And it's born of pain your words too slight attention. And so, Lord, we pray that in the coming year as a church, Sunday school, that as we teach your words from week to week, that we would do so prayerfully, intentionally, with the seriousness that they deserve, with an understanding of how terribly important it is that these things be passed on so that we and those following us are found trusting in you with all of our heart. So, Lord, we pray that you would come and meet us, not only in this hour, but in the entire coming year. We pray your blessing upon each teacher and each student. As we gather together in your providence week by week, cause us to understand your words that we might live. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You see. A guy by the name of Kurt Kaiser wrote what became a very popular Christian song in 1969. And if you're of a certain age and had any kind of connection with uh, evangelicalism, you'll remember this song because it was suddenly everywhere in the early 1970s. It was in Sunday schools, and it was at Bible camps, and it was at Bible schools. It it was youth groups. It was just everywhere, universally sung and embraced. Simple words Kaiser had written. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. Soon all those around will warm up in its glowing. Well, that's how it is with God's love. Once you've experienced it, you spread his love to everyone. You want to pass it on. The title of the song, Pass It On. Pass it on. Passing it on as it turns out, was not something that Kurt Kaiser came up with. 
uh, on his own in 1969. He was 35 years old when he wrote that song. But it was a notion that was absolutely central to Old Testament theology as well as New Testament theology. The worship team read for us this morning already the central text in the life of the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And here's the pass it on part again. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk in the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise up. And you shall bind them. Speaking of these words now. You shall bind them, the doorposts of your house, your hands, all those. You just write them everywhere. You shall write them everywhere. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. To what end? To what end? Well, the New Testament scholar, um, N.T. Wright, who's kind of famous for finding lots of allusions uh, in the New Testament back to the Old. Um, and, and I think most of them quite, quite insightful and legitimate. And I'm quite sure he's right about this one. And, and that is when the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans reaches one of the major transition points in that book, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and starts to make applications of the gospel, the first thing he says is this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Testing to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Wright says, and in the back of Paul's mind when he writes that is almost certainly Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. It's these words that you write on the doorpost of your heart, the frontlets in your hands and all over the place. It's these words that are to be the instruments of producing the renewal of your mind so that you think differently, fundamentally differently, than anybody who doesn't focus in on those words, which is always most people around us. You think fundamentally differently because you're drilled down into these words. And so these are the words that the psalmist has in mind as well in Psalm 78. These are the words, to use the song title again, that we are to be very serious about passing on. 
to the next generation, whether it's in Sunday school or really all the things that the church does. John Calvin used to love to refer to the church as God's school, Christ's school. Put that in many of his sermons. We who are in Christ's school, we who are in God's school, because at the heart of what it means to be a Christian and what the church is all about is just drilling down into these words, passing these words on from one generation to the next. I'd state our thesis for this morning this way. We are to seriously engage in a program aimed at spiritual survival. So well, you just said passing on. Yes, but in passing on the words is key to spiritual survival. What happens if, if the next generation doesn't receive the words is that spiritually they simply don't survive. They just wash downstream with the culture that's flowing endlessly and powerfully around them. And hence, we're to seriously engage in a program aimed at spiritual survival. Number one, we are to consider carefully this program for passing on the truth. In the opening six verses of this passage... He says the same thing over and over again. He weaves it back and forth. He says basically one thing in verses 1 to 6. Listen to how he does it. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children But tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law or instruction in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them, to their children. He says, so we're, we're taking truths that are old. Uh, taking truths that are old. It's verse 2. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth, and I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings from of old, long time ago. Now you see the importance of that all over the place at all times, but we we live in, in such strange times that he certainly wouldn't have seen this as a dark saying, but a very straightforward saying, right? Uh, Genesis 1, 27, and he made them male and female. That's an old word. That's an old word. See, we're not big into old words in our culture. We're big into progressing words, new words, new concepts, moving forward. 
Everything's evolving forward. Socially evolving, we're morally evolving, we're just evolving all over the place. And so we've evolved to the place where we're, no, no, that, that's male and female, social construct. Social construct. There's nothing to it, we just made it up. That's all there is to it, we just made it up. We literally say that. We literally say that. We just made it up. He's telling us. If you want to maintain any sense of moral and spiritual sanity anywhere in the world, you better pass on the idea that that's not true. That's not true. Jesus quoted Psalm 78.2, which he did in uh, Matthew 13.35. He glosses it back to a text like Genesis 1.27. Here's how he does it. He says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, referring to the psalmist. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So now, for Jesus, of old becomes the foundation of the world. In other words, it's just his way of saying We're talking about the designs and words and the program of God himself who founded the world. So the words that we're talking about are God's words and so they go all the way back to the foundation of the world. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us and we don't hide them from our children or the coming generation, that they might know the deeds of the Lord, his might, his wonders, and all that he has done. We talk about God. Will and way, the centrality of God. Um, That's what Christians do. That's what Christians live from. And that's, what we're celebrating as we open the, uh, the fall, right? Sunday school starts today. Talk about God there. Um, youth group will begin meeting again with regularity. Talk about God there. Thursday morning, men's group. We're in the middle of the section on justification in Calvin's Institutes this Thursday. Talk about God there. Ladies' Bible studies talk about God there. Talking about God, the will, the ways of God all over the place. Read our Bibles to remind ourselves of God and pass on these things to our children and our children's children because that's, it's crucial. But to what end? Secondly, We consider carefully the purpose of passing on the truth, which is in verse 7. So that they should set their hope in God 
and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This is what you'd call, at least as it's written out in the Hebrew text, it's kind of a weaker purpose clause. Uh, And by that, all I mean is, you know, you can all almost uncountable number of different phrases get introduced in Hebrew by just a wav, what they call a wav, which is and, or it can be translated in quite a few different ways, and context determines it. Well, that's what we've got here. Uh, But it's to be definitely, all the translations certainly have it right. Uh, uh, So what is the purpose of all this? Well, like the last song that we sang, uh, it is so that they should set their hope or their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Set their confidence in God. Now, the Bible would warn you, warn me, other than God, there is no good place to set your confidence. There's there's not a sliding scale of relatively safe places to set your confidence. There's God, and then there's a very foolish alternative. And that's all there is. And that's how the Bible talks. This word for confidence used over in Job 8, 13 and 14. Listen to the metaphor that Job uses of putting your confidence anywhere else. It's a really vivid picture. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. In other words, put your confidence, the confidence that should have been placed on God, Anywhere else, and I can tell you this for sure, that confidence will end up perishing. Guaranteed, no chance it'll be anything else. That confidence will perish. That's what he's arguing. And then he goes on to say this. His confidence is severed. And his trust is a spider's web. Now, it's that last image. That's a vivid little. His trust is a spider's web. You go out in your garage and you haven't kept it clean for a while, you'll probably find a spider's web out there in the corner. And if you're really diligent, you know, you get a ladder out and go out there and wipe it away with a rag. Otherwise, you just get a broom out. Whether you use the rag or the broom, here's what you'll notice about it. 
As you wiped it away, you felt no resistance at all. It was as nothing. It was as nothing. Oh, it holds a spider just fine. It'll catch the occasional fly. But when it, catch, when it comes to human beings, <laughs> if you try to lean on a spider's web, you're falling down. If you're hoping that the spider's web is going to hold you up, you're falling flat. That's his point. We put our confidence in things that inevitably turn out to be spider's webs. And if you forget the works of God, and if you forget the God of those works... You've forgotten everything substantial. And we have a culture, as a culture have done precisely that. On the grand scale. So what happens if you forget the works of God? Well, several really fundamental things happen to you automatically. You don't really know who you are. And you can't possibly. Once you get rid of it, you don't know who you are. What do you mean? Say, we're... We're human beings. Yes, and what's a human being? What's a human being according to the University of Chicago? What's a human being according to Harvard? What's a human being? Oh, well, we are one small accidental piece of the materialist accident that is the universe. I mean, that's the classical position of, of, of Marxism, dialectical materialism. There's just stuff. We're part of the stuff. Darwinism. There's just stuff. We're just part of the stuff. Oh, we're evolving stuff. We're evolving stuff. But at the end of the day, we're still just stuff. You don't know who you are. You don't know where you live. Where do you live? Well, I live in... I live in the materialist accident. As Martin Heidegger put it, our existence is thrown. There's no thrower and there's no reason for the throw. I live in this random, meaningless, purposeless place. And the future is extinction and the stars burn out. And the Big Bang collapses back into itself. And there you have it. But what if you listen to God? Who are you? Well, I'm created in the image of God. I'm a person created in the image of God. Where do you live? You live in God's universe shot through with God. In him we live and move and have our being, as we were noting last. And you know what to do, his commandments. You have a course of wisdom given to you. Our staff has been reading through John Frame's The Doctrine of the Christian Life, which is the book of it, the, the, the formal book itself, append, uh, Frame always puts all these appendices on the back of his books. But just the book itself, 
This is an interesting mathematical fact that I just came across this week researching this for you. It's 930 pages long, and interestingly enough, the section in that book on the Ten Commandments is exactly half the length of the book. Exactly half. It's 465 pages long. 465 pages, Frame is doing nothing but trying to flesh out the implications of what it means to have moral and spiritual direction from God. And once you've laid that aside, then what do you have? Well, you have the end of the book of Exodus. Or, excuse me, uh, judges. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And where does that lead to? Painful, miserable towns capable of murderous gang rape with nobody held accountable for anything. And then they recover and they go forward. And then they start doing what's right in their own eyes again. And then what happens? The northern kingdom goes off into the Assyrian exile. And the southern kingdom learns nothing from it. And they start, they just continue on doing what's right in their eyes. And they disappear into Babylonian exile. That's the underwhelming story of passing on the truth in the Old Testament. That's, that's the story of it. Thirdly and finally, we are to carefully consider the profound loss of failing to pass on the truth. Verse 8. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. There's three little pieces here to note. The first is, it's, it's up front, Those are two little participles uh, in verse 8 in Hebrew, and that they should be like their fathers, being stubborn and being rebellious in their generation. And basically all the authorities agree that the psalmist uses those two participles because those two participles show up twice in the same little context in Deuteronomy 21, which is the text about dealing with the persistently rebellious son. Here's how it reads. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 20. A man has a, and here's the two participles, a man has a son being stubborn 
and being rebellious, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of this city, to the gate, the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, Our son is, and here the two participles are again, being stubborn and being rebellious. He will not obey our voice, and he is a drunkard. And it ends very, very badly. It ends very, very badly. The elders believe that the only course of action is the death penalty. Well, that, that is what is lurking behind his use of these participles here. Now, not talking about one rebellious son, but talking about the people of Israel as a whole. They shall not be like their fathers, a generation being rebellious, turning aside from the ways of God. What did they fail to do? Well, he goes, that's the next phrase. A generation that did not make its heart firm. Hebrew causative this time. A generation that did not cause its heart to be firm. And then he switches tenses and goes with what in Hebrew is called the nephal, which is either passive or reflexive. And he comes back, the end of verse 8, to this. Either, if you take it passively, and their spirit was not made faithful unto God, Or, if you take it reflexively, which is, I think, what he means to do in parallel here, you get this. And its spirit, that is the entire spirit of this generation, did not make itself faithful to God. That is, they didn't listen. They refused to pay attention to the will and word of God, and they traded it for something else. And remember... Once you trade it for something else, you've got nothing but spider's web stuff. That's all that's left. There's nothing. There's nothing. And this happens in an environment that is unbelievably stacked against us, as it was in an environment unbelievably stacked against them. Little Israel, paganism all around them. And they're meant 
to influence their neighbors and not vice versa. Didn't happen. We live surrounded, surrounded by forces of evil messaging to us consistently, incessantly, at all times. We'll close with this. Just in my regular reading of the Psalms this week, I was so struck. I didn't, I didn't look this up for the sermon. I just came across it. And, whoa, here it was. Last verse of Psalm 12. It's a really striking picture of life in the pagan world in ancient times, life in the United States of America right now where we live. He says, um, the ESV has the wicked are prowling all around. Um, several of the commentators said, I don't think that's quite the idea unless you're thinking of prowling like a lion, but not prowling in the shadows or anything. To, it, it simply says, All around, the wicked are walking about. The wicked are walking about brazenly, strongly. They're in control. They're marching around back and forth. They've got everything in their hands. The wicked own everything, and they do. They do. They own all the universities. They own all the networks. They own all the major corporations. They own own everything. And what are they doing? Notice the second half of the verse. Here's what they're doing. He says, so as to establish, and this is a really rare word, the only place it occurs in the Hebrew Bible is right here. Um, so as to establish, and you should either take it as vileness or emptiness, and probably both. It's two expressions of the same idea into the broader area of life. But they are establishing vileness among the sons of men, the wicked walking around, And what's their goal? Their goal is to make you fall in love with what is a combination of empty and vile. That's their goal. It's obviously true. Did you see that earlier this week in the news? Justin Trudeau, Premier of Canada. There's places in the United States, he warned his people, There's places in the United States where they still have laws against sexual perversion. You might not want to visit the United States. It's the kind of place where you could find laws against sexual perversion. When everybody up here knows that sexual perversion should be celebrated as long as the day is. We live to celebrate it. We live to spread it everywhere that we can. 
Put out a warning. The wicked walk about in the hopes of establishing vile emptiness. John Golden Gay in his commentary on Psalms wrote this about this concept that flips back and forth and he thinks it flips back and forth. He says of the world, they turn things upside down, treating the insubstantial as if it counted, the worthless as if it were valuable, and the despicable as if it were honorable. Now Isaiah said that a lot pithier, right? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's what he said. And that's what's going on here. So, well, how does that relate to our text? Well, now back to Psalm 78, verse 8. See, Our goal is to make our heart steadfast, and faithful, where the tendency is to be not steadfast, not faithful. The goal of passing on the truth, the goal that you have when you read the Bible every day, the goal that you have when you attend the Bible study, the goal that you should have when you pick up a book like Calvin's Institutes, the goal that you have is that you would make your heart steadfast, firm, faithful to what God says, to the divine perspective on all of these issues. And you have to do that with basically every Hollywood script being written, being written to undermine that. Every primetime television show being produced to undermine that. Basically every major editorial page in the country to undermine that. That's the environment. And that, therefore, is why what churches do when they meet together around the Word of God is so absolutely important. And what you're doing when you pick up your Bible is so absolutely important. Because all around you they're selling spider web confidence. And you have the opportunity to be among those who lay your confidence in God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the revelation that you have given us of yourself in and through Jesus Christ, in and through the prophets, the apostles.
Oh, Lord, cause us to understand, as the psalmist says, that we may live. Cause us to be among those, to be a generation of believers who fix our hearts on your will and way, who practice faithfulness according to your will and way. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.